the one thing that makes all of this possible, that makes all of this effectual, that makes all of this real, that makes all of it something that we can hold on to and know without a shadow of a doubt that we will be victorious. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to think in terms of just looking at things, to consider that the resurrection is our assured victory. Apart from the resurrection, what we're doing here is a waste of time. We could preach real pretty stuff. We could preach real scholarly things. We could talk about a lot of social issues. We could talk about all our problems. We could talk about a lot of things. We could even talk about Jesus, the historical man who was born, who lived an extraordinary life, sinless in every way, all of his miracles. We could talk about his suffering. We could talk about his death. And we could talk about his burial. But apart from him being raised from the dead, all of that would be nothing. It would just be grand stories about a man. But there's something about Jesus Christ and him being raised from the dead by his Father that gives us the victory today and for eternity. If you would turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I'd like to get to my text before I get too excited. Yeah, I was thinking while we were worshiping, I like to ask this question every so often of people. Do you have a strong desire, a yearning, not just to get to heaven, but a desire to see Jesus? I mean, do you really have something in you that you'd so desire to want to see the one who gave himself for you? Or do you just want to make sure you don't go to hell? Because that's sometimes the only reason people, quote, make a profession of faith. But there should be something in us that wants to see our Savior. We should have a desire to see him. But in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Paul is preaching. He's writing a letter to the Romans, people he's never visited before. But the first thing he says is that this is the gospel of God. It doesn't originate with Paul. It doesn't originate with Peter. It doesn't originate with us. It doesn't originate with anyone but God Almighty. He brings us the gospel, and the gospel being the good news. He says that these things were promised beforehand. 
So the whole Old Testament is full of promises of the redemption, the salvation, the restoration of what was lost for humanity. We all know this. We all know that the gospel is the good news. It's that which we adhere to. It's, it's that which we should like to hear. And the gospel is not just one little aspect. It's just what I said, that whole redemptive process of where God is restoring and returning all things as they were. He's bringing about a restoration. This isn't about you just escaping the fires of hell. This is a big picture. But he says that in verse 3 or 4 that this gospel was promised beforehand, but it's promised concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel, in order for it to be the power of God unto salvation, concerns His Son. Because we know that He's the one. Or we believe it. I hope you do. I hope you believe that He's the one. The one. And only beloved Son of God who was sent into this world to bring about all the promises of God. Every one of them. He's the one who God sent to people like you and I to bring about that reconciliation, that restoration, that communion. So it's concerning His Son. It's His Son and what His Son has done that enables the gospel to have power. Because if we were to just preach glad tidings of anything else, it doesn't necessarily have any power. The power of the gospel is concerning His Son. But He goes on in verse 3 and He says that Jesus Christ, our Lord, God's Son, was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So we know that Jesus came down the line of King David, don't we? The royal line. That line that was established in the Old Testament as the one where a king would come forth and set up his everlasting kingdom. There would be one who would be brought forth through the line of David who would establish that permanency of a rule and a reign on this earth. Galatians tells us that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. But he goes on in verse 4 of Romans, but He was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So we have two things there. We have two uh, parallels, so to speak. We've got Jesus Christ being born through the line of David, right? That's, that's His humiliation. That's His humbling Himself, isn't it? That's Him coming to earth and living like you and I. And we read the Gospels and we love to see what Jesus did on this earth for humanity because we realize that when we read how Jesus was and how He treated people and what He did for people, that He was revealing the Father to us. He was declaring that when I heal you, that's God's will to heal you. 
When I deliver you, it's God's will to deliver you. When I provide for all your needs, that's God's will for you. Everything he said and did was an expression of who God was. He's the one who revealed the Father to us. If you ever have a doubt that God wants you well, that God wants you set free, that God wants to provide your needs, all you need to do is look at what Jesus did for humanity and say, that was the Father. That was what he desires for humanity. But what we see in those verses there is that he's born of the seed of David according to the flesh, but he's declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So we know that Jesus Christ, according to Philippians 2, Paul said, that he being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And Hebrews tells us that he then partook of flesh and blood just like his brethren and likewise shared in the same. It's the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. This is Jesus born after the line of David according to the flesh. This is the Son of God humbling himself by taking on our humanity. But then he goes on to say in verse 4 that he was declared to be the Son of God. That word declared, translated everywhere else in the New Testament, has to do with being ordained or appointed or designated. Read in Acts 10.42, he says, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. It's Jesus Christ in two states. Some would call it theologically the two states of Christ. His humiliation and his exaltation. Now, if all we ever have is his humiliation and no exaltation, what do we have? We have nothing. We have absolutely nothing. We have, we have the story, like I said, a historical story of a very interesting person. But apart from Jesus Christ who humbled himself, became like us to the point of obedience, to the point of the death of the cross, Apart from God raising him from the dead by resurrection and appointing him a position in power and authority, we live with nothing. But see, we need to get, we need to see and we need to understand that if God raises a person, and how many did God raise from the dead to glorify him? Only one, right? It's his only son. But the son of God was raised with power by the resurrection. Again, if we were to look at Philippians, we we well know the passage in Philippians 2. Because he was obedient and obedient to the point of death. In other words, he gave it all. We heard that this morning. It says, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what we see in the two states of Christ is when His Son is sent into this world, does all for us and is put to death on the cross and is buried in a tomb. But we don't end there because that's not the end of the story. The story goes on to say that God raises him from the dead. Now, I've never seen anybody raised from the dead. And I certainly would have been like the disciples, the apostles, when they had gone for days, three days, right, after his crucifixion. They saw it. They followed him for three years. Now they saw him beaten, suffering, and they saw death take his life. They saw these things. They watched their master, their Lord, die, didn't they? They saw him taken down from the cross and put in a tomb. Now for three days, you know they're just wondering... I mean, it's got to be distressing. You've put all your hopes and dreams into this man. But the day that he appeared to them, risen from the dead, I can only imagine the marvel. But I can also imagine the wonder and the amazement and the excitement that now I'm looking at one who has come through the other side. And now stands on the other side of death. He's conquered death now. Do you think that would give you boldness? I would think it should give us all boldness to know that our Savior has conquered death. That He is the one who now stands on the other side of death. But He not only conquered death, He conquered every enemy of ours. He's been exalted Far above every name. The names that are what? In heaven? The names who are on earth? And the names under the earth. He is the exalted one. He is the one whom God himself raises from the dead. Death was not the final story. So when we consider his resurrection, his, his being raised as being exalted and appointed in power, as the Lord of lords and King of kings. It's God who does this. It's God who raised him up and exalted him and set him on the right hand of his majesty. The resurrection is mentioned some hundred times in the Bible. It was the preeminent sermon in the book of Acts. It was, it was what they preached. They preached the resurrection of Christ. They preached that, yes, the Jews had killed him, hung him on a cross and murdered him, but God raised him up. It was God who raised him up. We even see that his resurrection 
is co-equal or mentioned as a co-equal in his death. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is also preaching the gospel to those in Corinth. He says in verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you, I declare to you the, gospel, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. So it's obvious when we read that very familiar chapter in 1 Corinthians, we're talking about the resurrection. But Paul is saying, listen, we know he was lived, he died, was buried, and he rose again. And the whole chapter here, we'll see, is about the importance of his resurrection. Because for us, we should be looking at and always fixing our eyes on the risen Christ, on the victorious Christ, on the high priest that has been exalted on our behalf because he now becomes our mediator for everything we need. All the promises of God are yes and amen in him. He now mediates all the redemptive benefits and blessings by him being exalted and raised from the dead. It doesn't just come because he did what he did on earth. God designates him. God has appointed him. God has purposely and powerfully raised his son to a place of exaltation. That's where we stand. That's where we should be looking. When we have issues, when we have problems, when we have needs, we should be looking to the one who God raised and appointed and exalted because he's the one that's going to mediate all the blessings, all the promises to us. But what is the, if the importance of the resurrection, Paul's going to make a point here, but he's going to do it in a negative way. Because the importance of the resurrection, he's first going to start out with the negative considerations. In verse 13 of chapter 15, he says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, It says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. So the first thing he's saying is, is these people are debating whether or not this resurrection's already passed. There is no resurrection. See, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection either. But if there is no resurrection, he's saying, apart from the resurrection, preaching is useless. Spreading the gospel that we, we, we spread would be absolutely vain and useless. 
He's making a point saying if there's no resurrection, we're wasting our time. Why speak another word? If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, where is he? He's just another one of thousands who took a beating, was hung on a cross, bled and died, and was buried. And that's where he stays. It's the resurrection that gives us our faith. It's the resurrection that gives us our hope. It's the resurrection that gives us our expectation. It's the resurrection that gives us our assured victory. Because God chose to appoint his son. So our preaching would be empty and vain apart from the resurrection. He goes on to say that these people would also be found false witnesses. If, if there's no resurrection, which I know we all believe in it, but to make an example of how important it is, if there was no resurrection and you're sharing the gospel, there is no gospel to share. You can talk about Jesus dying for your sins all day long, but we'll see here in a minute the book of Acts is not about telling people how Jesus died for your sins all day long. They were proclaiming that God's Son had been risen from the dead. That was their message. This is where you put your faith in a risen Lord. Yes, He died. Yes, He bore your sins. Yes, He suffered. Yes, He healed the sick. But He died and was buried, but God raised Him from the dead. He's where we put our faith. We live on this side of the resurrection. So for us to preach the gospel, if there was no resurrection, we're just vain and empty. We're just throwing words out there that sound real good. So how important then is the resurrection? That's his point. That there, if there is none, we're wasting our time. That makes it more and more important, as you see, that preaching is vain. Our witness is vain. He goes on to say in verse 14, your faith is also empty and vain. Apart from a risen Christ, does not matter then what you believe. Your faith is empty, ineffectual, futile, and vain. So what's Paul saying here? Listen, it's the resurrection of Christ that gives power to what you believe. It's the resurrected Christ that makes all the promises yes and amen. Otherwise, you're just believing stuff that has no power behind it. Your faith is vain and empty. How important then is the resurrection? How important is it that God raises and appoints His Son to that high place of exaltation? If your faith is in vain, wouldn't you hate the idea that your faith was all in vain, ineffectual, had no power, was void of any long-term or short-term consequence? Wouldn't you just hate that idea? Well, apart from the resurrection, it would. We'd be just playing a religious game. It's the risen Christ 
that gives all of this its power and authority and assurance. We believe God for a lot of things, don't we? I hope you do. I hope you're trusting him for something all the time. You need to be trusting him for your salvation, right? At least that. Well, you don't have any without the risen Christ. There is no salvation apart from God raising him from the dead. But we know in Romans 8, he says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. First thing he has to be is raised from the dead, to have many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The risen Christ. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for you. Apart from the risen Christ, there's no intercession for you. Apart from the risen Christ, there's no God being for you in sanctification, glorification, forgiveness, or any of these things. It's God's appointment of His only begotten Son rising him from the dead. Verse 17. Back to Romans. I should have had you stay there. Back to Romans. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Stay there. I'm getting ahead of myself. Stay in Corinthians. In fact, apart from the resurrection of Christ, verse 17 tells us, that if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The resurrection of Christ is so important. It's so necessary for your salvation, your forgiveness, for everything that we see promised to us in the Scripture. It's God's power raising His Son from the dead. In fact, in verse 18, if Christ be not risen, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. We'd be a bunch of liars here encouraging people and comforting people and telling them that, you know what? You'll see your loved ones again. Jesus Christ had to rise first. Jesus Christ had to be the one risen first. But because he has and because he's conquered death, we have the full assurance that those who have died in him will see again. We have the absolute assurance. So why does Paul make so many negative characteristics or considerations? Because he's really trying to get across the point that apart from how grand and how great and how powerful Christ's exaltation and resurrection is, 
We've got nothing. We've got nothing. Apart from God raising Jesus from the dead, you and I have absolutely nothing. It wouldn't matter what Jesus did with his life. It wouldn't matter how grand he taught. It wouldn't matter how much he suffered. He'd just be another one of the thousands who were crucified and buried in a grave. God raised him from the dead and exalted him to a place of power and honor. And that's who we look to. And that's who, it's the reason we can even have faith. We probably don't even think about it. We think we can just have faith. Can you? Can you just have faith? You have to have something. You have to have an object of faith. Our object of faith is God raising his son from the dead. You know, Jesus came, and when he was a man, he took on this weakness, didn't he? He took on this flesh. He took on the frailty of humanity. And he taught us. And he healed us. And he suffered and he died. In his apparent weakness. But you know what? When God raised him from the dead, he was no longer weak. He was no longer in a place where he was ever going to deal with sin again. God raised him. That, that part's over. That's over with. His earthly ministry ended when he was crucified, when he died, when he gave up the last breath, and they buried him. But it says that God raised him in power. All that frailty is gone. All that weakness that he endured as a man, gone. He's now the powerful, risen, resurrected Christ. He's now the one that God has appointed heir of all things. But apart from that, we've got absolutely nothing. So what positive considerations does Paul give to the resurrection? All enemies have been subdued. The last one being destroyed is death. Everything has been subdued. Everything has now come under the feet of the risen Lord. He's now gone from birth to death to exaltation. Verse 25 says he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. We know that by the empty tomb, God declares that he has accepted the sacrifice for our sins. If you ever have a doubt of God's ability to forgive you of your sins, you just need to look at the empty tomb. That's God's declaration that I have accepted and received that sacrifice for sin. 
He's done it all. Now I raise him up to an exalted position. He becomes our everlasting high priest. And do you ever think of Jesus as being your high priest? We don't think of priests, do we? I'm not Catholic. I know we have a few ex-Catholics. <laughs> Nothing against the Catholics. I'm just... But even in the Old Testament, they would have thought of priests as the one who does what for them? A, a, a priest intercedes, mediates between God and men. Well, here we have Jesus who's fully identified with man, you and I, and he's fully identified with God. He is the great mediator. He is the one now because he's got this complete knowledge and understanding of what it takes to live in this life as a man. He now is able to take what we bring and bring it to God. And then take what God has for us and bring it to you and I. He's our mediator. We can't bypass the mediator, can we? The mediator is the one who is called the everlasting high priest. He's the after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews tells us, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ is making intercession for you and I right now. Jesus Christ as the living Savior, the exalted Son of God, is before God in the Holy of Holies on our benefit, interceding for us. He cares about you. He knows more about what you're going to face, what you are facing, and the struggle you may be having facing it. But it says that as our everlasting high priest who lives forever is able to save us completely to the uttermost because he ever lives making intercession for you and I. I might intercede for somebody in here for 30 seconds because I really like you. Jesus is before God the Father interceding for us. He's been appointed by God. It says that Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands which are copies of the true, the Old Testament, holy of holies, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Our high priest is now in the presence of God for us. The one who shed his blood, the one who presented his own blood in the holy of holies and God accepted is now standing there as your high priest, as your mediator, interceding on your behalf. So when I fail to do it for you, you still have someone. As we fail, don't we? We don't always pray for each other like we should. 
we don't take the time to intercede for people as we probably should. There may be some grand and great intercessors, intercessors in here. But if Jesus Christ, my risen Lord, the one who gave his life for me, was raised from the dead by God the Father, and now he's in God's very presence interceding for me, that's a great thing. That's a powerful thing. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. You know, just thinking through the book of Acts and thinking about what they preached. Book of Acts, chapter 2. We know chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost. Peter's standing up and preaching on the day of Pentecost. In verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. And you thought that was the final word. You thought, here, we, we've done away with him. It's over. You might have killed the Lord of glory. But in verse 24, it says, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. What a statement. Men, men terminated the life of Jesus Christ on this earth. Is that what it says? By wicked hands, they terminated his life and thought, finally, we've gotten rid of this man. But God always has the final word. You crucified my son, I'll raise him from the dead. And I'll make a point of it. Because he goes on to say in verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. Wow. The risen Christ, the exalted one, is doing what now? He's receiving from God the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus who's sending it. The exalted, risen Christ now has the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father and he's sending it to you and I, to his church. He goes on, verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. To ever think that our Lord does not hold a position of power and exaltation 
and honor. And as our mediator and as our high priest, we come before Him. We come in His name, knowing that it's God who raised Him from the dead so that we could benefit from what He's done. And one of my favorite stories is Acts chapter 3. We all got to love this story. I must preach this. I probably preach this once a week. Well, no, I don't. (laughs) I'd like to. Acts chapter 3. We all know the story of the lame man at the temple. Common, common fixture at the temple. Never walked. Been sitting there begging for I don't know how long. But Peter preaching the resurrection of Christ. Yes, you killed him, but God has raised him from the dead. And they're witnesses to this. They're testifying to this. And in verse 12, he says, so when Peter saw it, the people are amazed at what's happened. And so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people saying, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this or why look so intently at us? As though through our own power or godliness, he made, we made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And His name, through faith in His name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through Him has given Him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Peter's saying, listen, Jesus was among you. You saw His works. You saw how God attested to him and all his teaching. You went and killed him. But God raised him up. And here we are demonstrating that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord, exalted one, and the one who's given us his name. And when we call on his name, when we have faith in his name, what are we doing? We're bringing Him into the situation, aren't we? But we're bringing the exalted one who has a name above all names. When we pray in the name of Jesus, as sometimes can happen, we forget what we're saying. Let me rephrase that. Maybe I tend to forget what I'm doing when I'm praying in the name of Jesus. Because Peter saw it as the name of the exalted one who God raised from the dead as the one who healed this man. And it was a demonstration to all those who killed him that he was alive. I'd like to think we could all demonstrate the risen Christ in our lives. Everything we do, everything we say, everything we share, When we pray in the name of Jesus, do we really believe 
that we're bringing that person, his work, his glory, his power, his exalted position. Do we really believe when we call on the name or we pray for someone in the name of Jesus, do we really believe we're bringing him into that situation and that authority then becomes what we're speaking by? Because Peter didn't have a problem with it, didn't he? He was a witness to the risen Christ. He understood now that the name of Jesus and faith in his name was able to make this man well. Amen. A demonstration to those around that Jesus Christ was alive and he was powerful. Amen. And over in chapter 4, says, then Peter, verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If this day we are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means, by what means he has been made well? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him... This man stands here before you whole. Do you have a need? Do we have needs? Peter is saying, listen, the one you crucified is the one God raised up. The one you rejected, God has now made the cornerstone. That rock, that rock you kicked aside and said he's not worthy to be our Messiah is the one that God raised up. And when we use the name of Jesus, things happen. He manifests himself as our healer, as our deliverer. He's not a dead savior. He's living right now. And he lives in power That's right. and authority. And if we really got a hold of that, his name would carry much more power when we spoke it. Because he's still there. He's still exalted. We're the ones that don't see him as we should. Verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. They marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Oh, how much I wish people would look at me and go, That guy's as dumb as a bag of rocks but he's been with Jesus. He's not just talking about Jesus. He's not just reiterating some stuff that he's learned about Jesus. Wouldn't you want people to look at you and go, he might not be too slick, he might not be too smart. There's something about that man, that woman. I perceive that they've 
been with Jesus. They know him differently than I do. They have a confidence in the risen Lord that I don't have. I wish everyone in this room had that said about them. That the perception was is that every one of us in this room had been with Jesus. Verse 33. And says, and with great power, the apostles gave witness. With great power, they gave witness to something. They gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. The power of the resurrected Christ. We should be giving witness to that. Our lives ought to be a testimony to our Lord who was raised by God from the dead. At one time weak and frail, but now He's no longer that. He's the all-powerful, exalted, appointed one who is heir of all things and has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. I'd like for us all to be witnesses, to give witness of that to those around us. There's other places, Acts 10, Acts 13, Acts 17. You can read, when these men went and preached in various cities, they preached the resurrection of Christ. They preached that our Lord was living and powerful. And then they demonstrated it because they believed it. They were witnesses of it. They had such boldness that you and I sometimes don't seem to have. Peter was preaching to the Gentiles in chapter 10. It says, We are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and showed him openly to all the people. But to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him, after he rose from the dead and commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it was he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. What are they sharing? They're, 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 it's not uh, four spiritual laws, is it? They're going about the countryside. They're preaching the risen Savior, the living Messiah. So when it comes to our faith or our assurance, do we really look to the risen Christ, the exalted one? Do we see him in a place of authority and power? Do we see that his name is above every name, whether in heaven, on earth, or under the earth? Or is our faith empty, ineffectual, and futile? because we don't understand the necessity and the power of God raising His Son from the dead and appointing Him.
I was thinking about every once in a while, I'm sure everyone in this room, you think about faith once in a while. But I was thinking about faith, and I was thinking about all the terms that we read in the New Testament, the descriptions of faith. You have little faith. You have great faith. You have faith as a seed of a mustard, mustard seed. You've got Jesus asking his disciples, where's your faith? How come you have no faith? Oh, ye of little faith. And I got to thinking, what makes all those different? What, 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 what characterizes all those different kinds of faith? Because some people were told that they had great faith, right? Some were told they had no faith. Some were wondering, Jesus wondered why you had such little faith. When the, Jesus, when his disciples said, asked him, Lord, increase our faith. He didn't give them a 10-step program on how to do that, did he? He just said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain. So where's the difference? Is there anyone in here that is content with little faith? I doubt it, right? If Jesus said, how come your faith is so little, you'd go somewhere else to church, right? <laughs> but how wouldn't, wouldn't you rather be characterized by the one who Jesus said, great is your faith. This is the greatest faith I've seen, even of all of Israel. As he said to the centurion who understood something. Because all these people who had little faith or who had great faith, they had characteristics about them, but it's what they perceived. It's what they knew. It's what they understood. What did the centurion know that gave him great faith? I know as a man under authority that you speak the word and whoever you speak to, it has to do whatever you say. That constituted great faith. He had total confidence in Jesus' words to command things. How about the Canaanite woman with the demon-possessed daughter? Great is your faith, O woman. Why was her faith so great? What characterized great faith for her? You know what? Even the little bit that falls off your table is enough. Even those crumbs that fall down to the dogs is enough for me to see my daughter well. That's great faith. Seeing the little teeny bit that Jesus would give would be enough. That's all it took. Woman, how great is your faith. Your daughter's well. How about the little faith people? The ones that worry about tomorrow, the one that worries about what they're going to wear, what they're going to eat, what they're going to drink, what they're going to do. They're worried about tomorrow. What are they not considering? Consider the fields that are clothed with all kinds of flowers and grass. Consider the sparrows who neither sow nor reap. But God feeds them. Are you not worth more than a sparrow? 
O ye of little faith. There's been too many days in my life where I'm pretty sure I was worth less than a sparrow. And I would have been one of those little faith people because I'm looking in the wrong place. I'm not considering the greatness of his provisions. I mentioned not that long ago the, the disciples in the boat, and they were in trouble. There's no doubt about it. When the boat's filling with water and the waves are coming over and it's crashing in, and he says to them when he wakes them up, where's your faith? Oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? These are his own disciples. Why did they doubt? We're about to die. Why did I doubt? They're looking at the wrong thing. How about Peter walking on the water? We all know the story. But he saw something, didn't he? He saw those wind and he saw the waves. And that was the end of his great faith, too. And how about when they got in the boat and Jesus said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they all start getting concerned. We didn't bring no bread. We didn't bring no bread. Now he's going to be upset. We just saw him feed 5,000 people. But, you know, we didn't bring any bread. Well, he rebukes them for having unbelief and little faith. What are, we, what are you even talking about? Don't you remember? I fed 5,000. And you're all tore up over you didn't bring bread. So you misunderstood what I was saying. So how about us? Do you want you, do you want to have great faith? I mean, faith is that key, isn't it? Faith is the key. Faith is how we receive from God. Faith is how things are changed in our lives. But it's not just faith for faith's sake. It's faith in an object. It's faith in a person. It's faith in the one who God raised from the dead. It's faith in the all-powerful, almighty, risen Savior who now mediates on our behalf all the blessings of eternal redemption. It's our faith in Him. It's our faith in the one who we see that God chose to raise up. And because God chose to raise him up, I have total confidence in him. Complete and total confidence. We should. We should be assured daily. So I ask the question of myself, how is it possible to even have faith? You know, I mean, I ask these strange questions of myself. Why can we have faith? I mean, it sounds kind of like a strange question, doesn't it? Because I, I want to get to the bottom of it for myself. Why is it that I can even have faith? Or, or do I just have it? No. If your faith is vain and empty and our preaching is a waste of time apart from the resurrection of Christ, then it's the resurrection I look to. And my faith is increased. Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll be done. Probably have it memorized, but I want to read it. There's something about...
I've always seen things this way. The difference in my life or in anybody's life, the difference between living over here with little faith and living over here with great faith is nothing more than a revelation. We can't make this too complicated. We should want and desire a revelation, an understanding from God of who He is. Because that's all it takes is to change you from here to doubting, to little faith, to great faith. Because when you understand who He is or what He's provided and you truly understand it and you know it, you'll be like the centurion. Just speak the word. Great faith comes by knowing. Ephesians 1, verse 17. Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saint? And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places? far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Would a revelation, would an understanding, would an increase of wisdom Help us. Can we pray this? Paul's praying it for the Ephesians. If our eyes could be open to the glory of the risen Christ, the exalted one who has all the promises ready to be distributed to his church, if we could see him better in a greater way, tell me faith wouldn't be increased. Your faith would jump off the charts if you saw him as he really is. Jesus told John in the book of Revelation, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and death. He is the victorious one. And we are victorious in Him. But only as we see Him that way and we trust Him that way. We can count on Him to bring us everything that's been promised. Because God rose Him up from the dead. Amen? Amen. Father, we... Thank you that you, by your power, has raised up your Son from the dead. That you brought him back from that grave where he lay.
We thank you for his life, for all that he's done. We thank you for the death on the cross and the shed blood. But we thank you, Lord, that you did not leave his soul in Hades, and he did not see corruption, but you, by your power, raised him up and appointed him and exalted him on high. Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes to see him in a greater way, that we would come to know him in all his glory and might and power. Father, we just look to you for understanding, for wisdom, for revelation, for that which would enter our hearts and quicken our faith, cause us to walk in this life as a witness and a testimony to the risen Lord. We commit ourselves to you as our Lord, as our Savior, as our guide, as our high priest, as our mediator. And we look to you to provide all the things that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.